0: On air, online, on digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Coming up today, the red meat outlook but can farmers hold on to their produce over summer.
2: And the outlook that we've got is basically saying, well, if you can hold on to those, then there's probably upside in the future. But the challenge is, can you hold on to them at the moment? And and conversations with people around, you know, they'd normally have a whole lot of silage that they would have cut or hay that they've baled, and they just haven't got that volume available.
1: And the rise of the small farm businesses helped along by COVID.
3: The other interesting thing, I guess, in the last few years is the ability for people to work remotely um, and that that COVID factor of, of an increase in remote work and people being able to leave big city, come down for that rural dream and still maintain their professional job.
1: Working remotely, sometimes in a mainland job and living the dream, the farm dream in Tasmania, that story coming up along with the latest Red Meat Outlook from Ribobank in just a moment. G'day, Tony Briscoe with you on this Thursday, where we also look at the results of an independent audit into where Hort Innovation spends its funds, more than a half a billion dollars over the past few years. And talking Red Meat, an Australian producer has won the award for the best steak in the world. We'll hear from that producer. And the Arman Centre of Excellence has been officially opened. Plenty of other things as well. We'll check the latest on the weather and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438922936. That number 0438922936. First up today, after a long downward spiral this year for beef and lamb prices, could there be light at the end of the tunnel for red meat markets? RoboBank analyst Angus Gidley-Baird suggests the signals are looking more positive for beef in the new year, while lamb's recovery will be more protracted. He spoke to Larissa Smith about some of the factors driving what's happening with the beef
2: market. Where the markets are, both sheep and cattle This year has probably taken most people by surprise. I must admit, I wasn't expecting the markets to drop as far as they did. And I I think it's the compounding of not only, you know, increased numbers of livestock in the system, very full supply chains, very soft consumer demand, but we've also got this... Uh, it's almost like a producer panic that's been in the market because of the commentary around El Nino and the declaration that was made by the bomb a month or two ago. But that commentary has been in the market since about April and I think people have just decided, well, we've seen what's happened in the past and it can go from good to bad very quickly and there's been a lot of decisions being made around the fact that this could be a really bad year and, and it almost feels like we have been in a drought influence market for the last five or six months
4: and what are you predicting then for the coming months and into the new year when do you see some upside there and that equilibrium coming back to a a more a normal um, setting
2: yeah and and we're really relying on that supply part of the equation to balance this market out at the moment because there's no real strong demand scenario that i can see in the next six twelve months particularly from a sheep meat point of view beef is a little bit different the US market will play a role there and it will start to create global demand for beef which will support Australian cattle prices but for sheep meat it's really about that it's going to be a fairly slow recovery we think of of consumption and demand in those export markets and domestic markets so
4: and why is that the case uh
2: just softer economic conditions and and fairly full supply chains as well um lamb is, uh, has has done very good in creating a sort of profile for itself as a bit of a niche premium product but at the same time, when, uh, as a general statement, when the consumer becomes a little bit more concerned about what's in their pocket and what they're buying, they revert to what they're more comfortable and used to.
4: Because they consider niche as being expensive?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's been positioned as a fairly high price protein in that cabinet. And and talking here in markets, Australia is probably a little unique. We, we're very strong lamb consumers. Um, but when you're talking markets like China and Middle East and, and the US, which are our three big export markets, it's a... It's a small part of their overall consumption there. I think it's 400 grams per person per year in the US. So um, uh, the anecdote I sort of say is, you know, that uh, lamb in the US was possibly a US consumer going out to dinner and seeing lamb as an entree, and it was priced... Based on the fact that it was a small serving, you know they could overcome some of the the, the, the higher price of it. But um, it became a, an opportunity for the consumer to try something different. So I always say when I go out to a dinner and I am worried about how much I am spending, the entree is generally the thing that drops off my my list. Um, so that's that's having a bit of a an impact in terms of overall demand in the market or overall consumption in the market we're actually seeing much higher volumes to the middle east and to china Uh, i'd probably argue that they're more a result of the fact that we've got more available and it's a lot cheaper than what it was before and they're buying cheap protein as opposed to the consumers in those markets demanding that product come through the system.
4: And overseas, how do customers view the price of Australian beef?
2: Well, We've worked ourselves into a very favourable situation. It's not great if you're a producer at the moment, obviously with prices 40, 50% lower than what they were this time last year, but um, it does make it very much more competitive on that global market. And so that's that's assisting. Um, We've also got the US at the moment, which is going through their normal um, cyclical process of a contracting production base. We're expecting production to drop sort of three, 4% um, this year and and next year. That's gonna mean that there are less US suppliers, but it also means that that US product is more expensive because that US consumer is very strong and and they will continue to pay what they need to pay to access beef. And that will mean that the price of, of that US product in that global market goes up so We're in a favourable situation from a beef point of view in that we've got increasing volumes at very competitive prices and our biggest competitor, being the US, is having contracting volumes at higher prices. So I think it's going to work in Australia's favour. We've just got to wait for the volumes to clear out of the system. You look at the number of, or the volume of stocks in Japan, for example, at the moment, and it's at the highest level it's been at for 20 years. Um, It's flatlined for the last couple of months, which is encouraging, as in it hasn't continued to increase. And we've seen our export volumes to Japan have dropped year on year. So we've just got to wait for that to move through the system, though. And once that clears up a little bit, that'll free up the Australian processors. They'll see that there's ability to send volume into those markets. They'll start pulling more cattle into the system because at the moment we've got a bit of a, a, a ceiling, a bit of an artificial ceiling on our processing capacity um, based on the, the, the labour availability in those plants and, and adding additional shifts and adding days to the the, the run sheet. There just isn't the real incentive to do that at the moment because those supply chains are quite full. If they kill more cattle, they've got to find a home for that, and that's just a big big challenge at the moment. So as soon as those supply chains clear up, I'd imagine that we'd start to see those processing um, operations increase the volume of throughput and that'll start pulling cattle into the market and and support prices.
4: Now you're in Tasmania talking to farmers here about your projections for the coming months. What are you hearing back from those farmers?
2: I was a bit surprised that uh, there were so many people talking about how dry it was down here. I know that um, yeah, southern parts word dry into the midlands there but um yeah i was surprised to hear it was a fairly common theme across most of the people i spoke to obviously a a concern given you know the availability of fodder and as you're starting to head into those summer months and how many livestock you've got on property and and given the prices that you've got at the moment um and the outlook that we've got is basically saying, well, if you can hold on to those, then there's probably upside in the future. But the challenge is, can you hold on to them at the moment? And, and conversations with people around, you know, they'd normally have a whole lot of silage that they would have cut or or hay that they've bailed and they just haven't got that volume available um, this year. So, yeah, I would imagine there's some tough questions being asked around how many livestock they've got how many they can sustain and what they they need to do to balance those numbers out but if if anyone was in a position where they could hold then um yeah the ability to hold them into next year when potentially those prices might rise is um, um is something to consider but Yeah, it comes down to what you've got available.
4: Are you surprised by uh, the numbers going through the processing plans?
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was looking at the numbers for the weekly kill numbers for Tasmania and and sheep numbers. While we haven't seen huge volumes in the first half of the year, the second half of the year are are tracking very close to the highest volumes in the last 10 years. I think I had to go back to 2015 to find something similar in terms of the numbers of sheep, um, adult sheep, coming into the market at this time of the year. So obviously... Reflective of seasonal conditions at the moment, um, but also possibly a reflection of some of the numbers in the system as well. So Victoria and southern New South Wales generally as a general statement are doing okay at the moment. But probably because they've got so many livestock, there's just not that need um, to, to pull stuff in from Tasmania. And also at the same time, it's going to mean that there's there's already plenty of volumes on the mainland going into some of those processing works that mean you know opportunities to, for Tasmania to send over uh, to the mainland is is uh, you know, the the benefit or the advantage of it is just isn't there, um, as we have seen in the past sometimes. Senior Proteins Analyst
1: with Rabobank, Angus
2: Skidley baird talking there to
1: Larissa Smith about the red meat market. Well, more on the red meat side, and Northern New South Wales Company's Jack's Creek has taken home the title of the world's best steak at the 2023 World Steak Challenge. Two days of judging took place in the Netherlands before an awards ceremony in London this week, which also saw the Willow Tree-based operation take out the Best Sirloin and Oceana's Best Steak Award as well. It's the third time Jack's Creek has won the World's Best Steak title. Managing Director Patrick Warmore spoke to Lara Webster about what it means to be the champion again.
5: Yes, we've been fortunate enough to win World's Best Steak in London. And yeah, the first year of the event, 2015, we, we won World's Best Steak Producer and then we did it again in 2016, Yeah, but we got pipped at the post in 2017 as we went for a hat-trick. So yeah, thrilled to be able to take home the gong in yeah, nine years since the event started. Give us a bit of a rundown of the piece of meat. So we won three awards. So we, uh, we won Oceana's Best Steak, we won World's Best Sirloin and then World's Best Steak. And those three awards were all won with a uh, a Wagyu cross sirloin. It was specifically a F2 to F3 Wagyu cross. So that's anywhere from 75% to 88% Wagyu. Uh, And, yeah, the animal was backgrounded uh, at our property at Breezer. uh, And then it was grain-fed on the Darling Downs at Lemon Tree Feedlot and then processed at uh, at Casino Abattoir. But... uh, you know, the key is obviously the whole life cycle in Wagyu uh, from, you know, the breeding, the breeding development, genetic development in Wagyu over the, over the last 30 years has been immense um, and then, you know, the animal husbandry and lifetime nutrition um, has it's just become so much more advanced these days. But uh, the, the entry was a marble score nine, so uh, it's got as much marbling as we can physically count in the product. Uh, and that's key because that's where you get all of your flavour. And, uh, and, yeah, it, w- it obviously performs really well. So,
6: Well, my mouth uh, is watering. <laughs> but yeah. you have, uh, or your family, were one of the first to really breed, process and market Wagyu beef. So I guess you've been there since the beginning of the industry here in Australia. So what has the journey been like to, to get where you are today?
5: Well, it's been long. Um, but most importantly, it's been a lot of fun. We love what we do. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was a new breed back in the 90s, so you um, have all of that fun about being first to market and developing a product, and then, you know, through the, um, you know, through the teens and even before then when Wagyu was growing very, very fast, you're part of that. You're part of the, the whole branded beef revolution uh, and providence um, around food products, and we've been able to you know, be part of those waves in, I guess, beef and, and food. And it's, it's been just a lot of fun, to be honest. And when things are fun, you stick out of it and you keep doing it. So we're just really thankful to, um, yeah, to everybody in Australia that um, has supported Jack's Creek or is just in the industry uh, because, yeah, it's a wonderful industry to be part of um, and it's got a very, very bright future.
6: How do the, the cattle you breed today compare when you look back to what you started with
5: well when we started um you know it was about convincing people that there was actually wagyu outside of japan because as you know wagyu means beef of japan uh and so that was like the first hurdle that we've actually got cattle in australia that are are actually bona fide wagyu and then i guess the next step was uh developing i guess the marbling Uh, Quality And in those days, yeah, we're producing a lot of two, threes and fours. Whereas today, uh, you know, the the Wagyu market is very much focused on delivering marble score six to nine, which is at the upper end of the marbling scale. So that customer that wants that really intense Wagyu flavor or, a um, you know, just a a really good experience. So it's massively changed since um, when we started.
6: How likely do you think it is you could do this for a fourth time? Win that, win that world's best state title.
5: Well, we got we missed out on the hat trick, so we actually you know, we're, we're we're one out of three. So we're focusing on trying to get the next two, so we can get the hat trick done. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that I think that'll make it six, right, or five. Sorry. So so that, that that's our goal. If I'm um, to be a little bit humble.
1: Jack Jack's Craig, Managing Director Patrick Warmole speaking to Lara Webster about winning the world's best steak title for a third time, the Wagyu. Coming up, the head of Hort Innovation talks about their spending of more than half a billion dollars.
6: It's Lucy Braden from Drive. Summer Festival Mona Foma is coming back for 2024, spread across two cities. And I've had a sneak peek of the lineup. Queens of the Stone Age are coming to Hobart, but who else is joining them? And it's
7: one of the biggest lineups we've ever had.
6: You'll hear from artistic director Brian Ritchie on Drive from 4 o'clock today. And you'll meet one of the
8: performers. Drive with Lucy Braden on ABC Radio Hobart.
0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: I'm still thinking about that Wagyu steak sandwich. Wouldn't it be nice? An independent audit into horticulture research body Hort Innovation found the grower funded body needs to improve transparency and better communicate how it invests its money. The research body received $588 million in revenue between 2018 and 2022, partly from grower levies across 37 crops and partly from the federal government. Hort Innovation Chief Executive Brett Fifield told reporter Elsie Kennedy his organisation was working to address the issues raised in the report.
9: The review released today has more than a dozen recommendations. We're mindful that the report and the, of the review does point to some areas of um, improvement and action, which we're very happy with, but we know there's more to be done.
10: So in particular, one of the recommendations was that Horde Innovation should publish an investment decision framework in order to let everybody know why you're investing in certain programs and projects. Why is it that you guys haven't published a decision framework so far?
9: Horde Innovation receives feedback via 37 industry advisory committees. Each of those represents different parts of or different commodities within horticulture. We take that advice and develop annual investment plans with those groups. We're confident that we are investing in the right areas. We're flexible. We're listening to industry. The recommendation around a decision tree, we take that on board and we'll be publishing one of those early in the new year the consultant that completed
10: the review found that there was some feedback from stakeholders suggesting there wasn't a lot of clarity
9: over investment activities
10: what are you doing to improve the communication and the conversations that you're having with the
4: stakeholders
9: part of the last 12 months has been around really focusing our communication with industry groups so there's the 37 peak industry bodies and also their members and growers right across australia We've reallocated a significant amount of resource into a new team called Industry Services and Delivery where we've doubled the number of team members servicing each of those industries. And so we're really focused on that engagement, opening up discussion early and actually building together in partnership with industry the priorities for Hort Innovation moving forward.
10: One of the other recommendations was that you finalise the execution of memorandums of understanding That you've got with peak industry bodies and update the status of those MOUs on your website. Again, just letting everybody know where everything's up to. Why is it that you haven't done that so far?
9: We have been doing that throughout the process. The the reset and refresh of our advisory mechanism has been a project that's been underway for 18 months. We expect next week that we will sign the final memorandum of understanding with the uh, one group that's outstanding and then we'll be updating and publishing uh, on our website all the final documents.
10: What is that one group that still has the outstanding MOU? Nursery. So where, where is that up to at this stage?
9: We've agreed terms and we think suspect it will be signed next week.
10: The other thing that was recommended in the review was that you put some processes in place in order to make sure that the investment of levy payer and government funding is efficient and that there aren't any duplications. You had about 154 million come in in revenue in 2021, 22. Of that, you put out about 103 million in research and development. What are you planning to do to increase the efficiency of that spending?
9: Part of the priority for innovation moving forward is having larger programs of work rather than individual projects. So you're seeing a significant shift in our investment portfolio from single industry investments to tackling challenges that stretch beyond one individual sectors, so bringing together tree crop sectors to focus on particular biosecurity challenges that they all face. So providing industry organisations to bring funds together or bring those dollars that they pay into levies into larger programs of work and that increases the efficiency and the stretch of our R&D muscle across the sector.
1: Horde Innovation Chief Executive Brett Farnfield speaking there to reporter Elsie Kennedy. Well, to another farmer representative group and right across the country, grape growers and winemakers pay mandatory levies to fund marketing, research and industry development. Under the law of the Wine Australia Act, to be precise, one body is given the role of representing all of those producers, advocating on their behalf to government and how those levy dollars are spent. At the moment, that representative body is Australian Grape and Wine. But another body which claims to represent for more than 60% of the country's wine production wants an equal seat at the table. Australian Commercial Wine Producers Limited has written to the Federal Ag Minister seeking formal recognition, arguing that Australian grape and wine no longer has a mandate for exclusive representation. Australian Commercial Wine Producers CEO Chris Byrne explains.
11: We've written to the Minister seeking recognition for the contribution that we make to the mandatory levy system for the wine grape industry, and to alert the minister and others about the opportunities that we believe exist across the inland, that's the three inland regions often regarded as the warm inland. Huge opportunities for us to contribute to one voice to government, which is what government want, uh, and that implies we can help with the unification of our entire industry. But to do that, we must be recognised for the levy contributions that we make.
12: There is a a body uh, that is formally recognised within the Act as the representative body for wine and grape growers across the country. Are you looking to replace them as that representative body?
11: Not at all, Selena. That is Australian Grape and Wine, and that's what's known as the declared body under the Act. When we set ourselves up three years ago to represent the inland producers, it was because... The majority of them, the great majority of them, were not part of Australian grape and wine. So we've said, look, we'll work to unify that group, bring it together, and then to work with Australian grape and wine, the declared body, and Wine Australia, the RDC that's responsible for the spending and the distribution of our levies. And we are seeking input in collaboration with Australian grape and wine, not not looking to replace them at all but to work closely with them. And indeed, that is our track record over the three years since we started. We have initiated lots of engagement with both Australian Grape and Wine and Wine Australia. I would say that we have a very good working relationship with both of those groups. But the reality is, as an industry, we're still looking at, at the deepest crisis in a generation and we believe that we can help accelerate strategies and advocate policies that will help to bring about solution to that crisis.
12: Have you had difficulty, or what is the difficulty, of getting, a, I guess, a formal seat at the table for Australian commercial wine producers without that, that recognition?
11: It's a difficult one to sort of describe, but the reality is that, as I've said, we've made, we think, you know terrific contribution to building relationships with both the management of Australian grape and wine and Wine Australia. We think we've made great progress, but... Not being recognised means that we are not identified in any of the material that is, is about promoting unity and togetherness, strategy and policy. And we're simply saying, look, as the majority uh, contributors, we must be recognised. It's, it's, it's just a matter of acknowledging that Australian commercial wine producers exist. We are a legitimate entity that represents the interests of the commercial producers across the inland. The, the producers and the growers collectively... Contribute more than 60%, is our estimate, of the mandatory levies. So it seems only fair and only just to us that we should be adequately recognised.
1: Australian commercial wine producer CEO Chris Burns speaking there with Selena Green. The Australian grape and wine CEO Lee McLean says there needs to be a united single voice
8: to government. As the national industry body, Australian grape and wine works really hard to represent. Uh, the entire industry Uh, and we've been working really hard to make sure that we're taking the views of um, commercial wine producers uh, premium wine producers and everyone in between uh, into account when we make uh, representations to government so i'm based in canberra uh this is what we do uh, on a day-to-day basis Uh, we do genuinely try to make that effort to, to represent the entire industry the thing that we are really focused on at the moment is not industry politics though we're really focused on issues relating to the reopening of the China market, trying to address the oversupply situation, dealing with things like alcohol uh, warning labels that have been proposed and floated in the media recently. So that's what we want to make sure we're focusing on and representing the industry's best interests as best we can.
12: Now, one of the arguments from uh, the commercial group is that they do contribute a significant portion of the the mandatory levy, industry levies. So they believe that they really do have a a mandate or that uh, Australian grape and wine no longer has a a moral authority to exclusively represent all producers. So is there room for them to have a seat at the table? What do you make of their argument?
8: Well, from our perspective, the key thing for us is to make sure that we have a united, um, single voice to government. Um, Division in the messages that we're bringing to government makes things difficult uh, to be quite frank so we we we're hoping that we can see a a closer alignment with commercial producers and and australian grape and wine Uh, and of course we would love to see commercial producers being members of australian grape and wine and indeed many are so with regards to the the claims around membership um, we've raised some question marks around that but ultimately that application to be recognised as an industry representative body will sit with the Minister uh, and we will be working with the Minister's office to make sure they understand uh, how our industry association works at Australian Grape and Mine to explain some of the transparency that uh, we have in terms of our constitution and our governance arrangements and ultimately it will be a decision for the Minister to make.
12: Is that there, though, some work for Australian Grape and Wine to work further with those commercial producers so that they do feel like they are having that that fair representation?
8: Uh, Absolutely. So we have been making a genuine effort. So I've been in the the CEO's role at Australian Grape and Wine for 12 months uh, to the day, and I've visited regions like the Riverlands, Mildura, Griffith, more than any other region in the country uh, over the last 12 months. We know that it's those regions that have been doing it really, really tough uh, in recent months and and years indeed. So we know that there's people hurting out there. Uh, We know that there is a great opportunity for us to talk to those businesses to make sure we're representing their needs and their interests, Uh, and we're really well-placed to do that. So we have open arms to anyone who wants to be part of our organisation, uh, and we will represent those views uh, to the very best of our ability.
1: CEO of Australian Grape & Wine, Lee McLean, ending that report from Selena Green. Still to come, an expert on small farms with some advice. The new Centre of Excellence for Almonds officially opened. And we'll check the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Michael Della Fontana.
7: Thank you, Tony. Australia's unemployment rate has risen back to 3.7% for the month of October. That's despite the creation of an estimated 55,000 jobs last month. The Bureau of Statistics says the rebound in the participation rate back to 67% has caused the increase in unemployment. Tasmania's opposition is alleging the state government used fraudulent figures to minimise the projected increase in the property-based fire service levy under its proposed reforms. Documents tabled in Parliament last night include an email from the Acting Treasury Secretary in which she says the figures released by the Fire and Emergency Services Minister would not raise enough funds and she's unaware what modelled or who modelled the figures. Premier Jeremy Rockliffe says the current fire levy system is unfair and needs to be changed to properly fund fire services. And Australian cricket captain Pat Cummins says they're pe- they've peaked at the right time as the team prepares for tonight's World Cup semi-final against South Africa in Kolkata. The five-time world champions will be aiming to make it eight straight wins when they take on the Proteus for a place in Sunday's final against India. More news at one o'clock.
1: Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. G'day, Pani. A little bit of uh, rain about, a few showers? Anything yes. much in the gauge? No, not not
13: a lot. The um, the, the rainfalls for the 24 hours to 9am, Mount Reed in the west and Lake Margaret in the west had the tops at 15 and 11 respectively. And since 9am, Mount Reed again has had five millimetres and, and Scott's Peak's had three. And there's been uh, scattered falls light falls around into the west and some around the south as well, but, uh, particularly around the far south. There's been a, a couple around. No, we haven't had anything in the gauge at Hobart. I was just thinking there was here, but it's near here. Um, yeah, but it, showers should continue this afternoon and will start to increase about the northeast into the afternoon. The north, will, other parts of the north will be largely fine, but cloudy um, and what will happen tomorrow is uh, we'll just have a westerly flow and it will be showers into the west but only very light again. Into the weekend, similar sort of story, very light sort of um, rainfall amounts that could have happened pretty much anywhere about the state except about the north coast and um, pretty light winds as well as, as there's a very weak pressure gradient over the state. And it continues into next week, so it's it's very light winds again uh, as an uh, as another ridge comes over um, after about Monday or Tuesday uh, over the state and settled weather really um um for till probably the end of next week.
1: Yeah, um, there was mention of snowfalls. Is there is there sort of gonna is that going to happen?
13: Uh, there, there's probably it's probably a few flurries on the top of Mount Wellington at the moment. Um, but and other higher peaks but uh yeah i haven 't it it yeah, 's cold enough to be snowing, and it looks like out the window it looks like there could be a few flurries, yeah but very light what sort of
1: temperatures have we got at the moment michael
13: yeah it 's uh thirteen degrees here in Hobart, seventeen in Launceston and uh Devonport, seventeen winyard fourteen king island fourteen as well Strawn twelve. Wind is 16 and St Helens 15, so pretty mild across the state. It should be, uh, it, as, as this cloud moves out, it, it'll be quite cool to, to, tonight with four forecasts for Launceston.
1: Four degrees, OK. Mm. All right, We uh, do we have any warnings?
13: We've just got a strong wind warning tomorrow for southern waters for southeastern and southwest and no
1: other warnings at all. And the coastal waters and swell, what's happening out there?
13: Yeah, sure, we, we Generally, the winds are today south to southwesterly at 15 to 25 knots. That's pretty simple, that, that one. Tomorrow, we've got west to southwesterly winds at 5 to 15 knots about the northeast in the morning. Elsewhere about the state, 15 to 25 knots and reaching up to 30 knots at, at times about the south. We've got afternoon sea breezes as well in the north and the east. The swells around today at, um, in the west and south, southwesterly at about 3 to 4 metres and uh, easing or decaying to two to three metres tomorrow. In the north, is a westerly to one metre, and then it's only about up to 0.5 metres tomorrow. In the east, the swell is a southerly at one to two metres, although southwesterly, two to four metres, offshore in the south. Tomorrow, southerly at one to two metres again, although two to three metres offshore in the south. The wave rider buoy is confirmed out at Mariah Island. It's been damaged, uh, it's been investigated at the moment. But at Cape Sorel, the wave rider boy is reading at three point two meters right at the moment. Tony.
1: Yeah, it's been damaged. What do you think has been damaging it? Somebody in a boat or a whale? Uh, or? Neil the Seal. Neil the Seal. How do they no, work? No, How no. do they work those those wave rider boys? Describe one for me.
13: Oh, just, it, uh, it bobs up and down. Uh, I think it's, uh, there's, the measurements are below the surface, but uh, I, haven't, I, I must admit I'm a bit, bit ignorant,
1: Tony. All you right. got me
13: on the spot there.
1: Well,
13: next time? <laughs> I'll, I'll catch you up next time, yeah. I'll
1: research <laughs> the subject. You've got some research to do. And I want to know why they don't call them wave rider bobs, if they're bobbing. Bobs.
13: Out. I like the American term, the buoy, the, the b- wave rider buoys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, there's your homework, Michael. Yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you. <laughs> Thank you. Michael Conway from, from the Bureau uh, with the latest information for you on the uh, Waverider boys, one of them out of action, Mariah Island. I wonder what's happening there. Something, something damaging that boy we shall investigate. Uh, Roger says, sorry, Tony, I don't, I don't think most of us can afford a Wagyu steak sandwich. No, a sausage sandwich maybe we can afford, Roger. That's what you love too. Thank you. 0438922936, that text line number. In just a moment, we'll talk about small farms.
0: This week on Landline, tagging and tracking wild cattle and buffalo in the top end.
9: Probably of the largest scale from a wildlife or a buffalo tracking perspective that's ever been done.
0: And the couple changing how goats are farmed in Australia.
14: We never planned. We actually became accidental goat farmers and processors.
0: That's Landline, Sunday, 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iview. On air, online, on digital and the ABC Listen app. This is The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Well, owning a small farm or a block can be an enriching experience for some people, especially if they can enhance the biodiversity in existing native vegetation. Kate Thorne is a biodiversity program manager at NRM North, and she has some practical ideas on how it is achievable on a small block.
3: There have been a lot of people um, moving on to small properties. Certainly I've been working with smallholders for over 10 years and we definitely found, again, there's a great diversity, but they are families moving out of town wanting to commute to jobs. Um, they're certainly retirees and semi-retirees from within Tasmania, um, definitely from the mainland as well. That um, tree changer element's been quite evident for a number of years. The other interesting thing I guess in the last few years is the ability for people to work remotely um, and that, that COVID factor of, of an increase in remote work and you know, people, people being able to leave big city, um, come down for that rural dream and still maintain their professional job. Some people have um, threatened vegetation communities or threatened species habitat on their small farms. That's quite common. The list map system for Tasmania has great mapping information and that has some threatened species and communities listed on it that you can look up for your property. But just because they're not listed there doesn't mean you don't have them. Um, So certainly if people are looking at at developing their land, um, they may need to get an expert out to have a look and see what they've got. And that's something that some people do just out of interest as well, even if they're not looking to develop the land, is to find out what values they've got there.
15: You've bought a block. There's a bit of pasture. There's a bit of native vegetation. In your view, what are the first steps they should take to manage that land? having
3: a clear idea of what you want to do with it but ideally even before you've purchased to have a look at whether that is a suitable block of land for what you'd like to do and we do see that quite a lot that people try to I guess shoehorn a dream into a particular patch of land and um You know it can be quite hectic trying to put in an offer trying to try to get hold of that piece of land but really if you can do some planning um, look up the spatial systems uh, and depending on how ambitious you are if you want to take on a a niche horticulture crop or something like that to um, to get some expert help and see whether that um, block of land is suitable there are some amazing uh, information layers available now through the state government system um, the enterprise suitability mapping so that's a really good place to start they actually list a whole range of crops and how suitable um, each part of Tasmania's agricultural land is for it.
15: What are some important aspects a landowner needs to consider from a biodiversity point of view?
3: So it'd be great for people to make a plan of how they can incorporate production and biodiversity onto the property, and that might be existing native vegetation or natural values that they know about, or it could be how to, for example, um, plant shelter belts um, or revegetate portions of the land, and that can be really important, not just for biodiversity, um, but for production as well. So providing shelter for stock, improving waterlogged areas or, or reducing Waterlogging issues, um, shading as well, as well as um, encouraging beneficial insects and that sort of thing for pest management. So having that balance, and there's a lot of research to show that having up to about thirty percent of your property in native vegetation can be really beneficial for production.
15: If you've bought a block and you'd like to return. pasture paddock back to native vegetation, what steps should you take?
3: Allowing plenty of lead-in time, really planning at least a couple of years in advance so that you can get any weeds under control, cease fertilising or make sure that that nutrient balance starts to return to something that's suitable for native species, undertaking ground preparation and working out the appropriate species for that area and that can be tricky if you're in a very agricultural landscape but there are pointers that you can use and our new online property planning resource um, has some tips on how you can start to look at what species um, will grow in those areas and as I said we also have a revegetation guide so it's not just about the the planting and it's very much about the preparation the lead-in time and also the maintenance as well. If you're uh, unfortunate enough to have something like a a gorse infestation that you'd like to manage and replant, then you need even more lead-in time for that. If you're looking at one of the specialist native nurseries, then you can need at least a year's lead-in time to order appropriate species. And I guess making decisions about whether you're prepared to do chemical control, um, how you can perhaps reduce that chemical usage. Um, So not wholesale spraying, but mechanical control with uh, chemical follow-up and whilst a lot of people might be reluctant to use chemicals if you plan it out appropriately and and minimise that you might only need to do one pass then you can get great results.
15: Kate in your experience what are some of the challenges in owning a small block?
3: There can be a lot certainly we find a lot of smallholders can be very time poor Um, so they might be still holding down a day job Raising children um, and trying to, to realise their dreams on a small property as well. You know, which is fantastic, and lots of people do make it happen, but planning and being realistic is really important to that. Um, so, we encourage people to create a property plan that doesn't have to be um, a novel, um, but it's a really important process to kind of reality check what needs to be done. Um, often, people don't know everything that they don't know. Um, So doing a a bit of a self-assessment. Are there, for example, regulations or legal requirements that you're not aware of, particularly people coming from the mainland? Um, And being able to prioritise things. And one of the really important things that we find um, getting people into the room for a workshop is the value of, if it's a, a couple or a family, more than one person involved in managing that property, to actually uh, be on the same page.
1: Kate Thorne, Biodiversity Program Manager at NRM North, chatting there to Claire Burberry about the challenges of owning a small farm. Well, in just a moment, we'll take you to the Armand Centre of Excellence.
12: Nightlife with Philip Clarke. Thinking more
11: positively about where you're going is hugely important. I mean it's clinically been demonstrated, isn't it?
3: Interestingly, there's some links to suggest that our mindset and the way that we feel, everything is linked. So we see sometimes when people have negative affect over certain things, there's differences in their immune function in terms of they have higher levels of inflammation.
6: Nightlife with Philip Clark.
12: Monday to Thursday from 10. on the ABC Listen app from ABC Radio
0: Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: The Armand Centre of Excellence is now officially open. A 60-hectare research facility in Loxton in South Australia's Riverland was commissioned in 2016 with funding from the Federal and South Australian Governments. But now the multi-million dollar facility has been sold to the Armand Board of Australia. Hort Innovation has provided more than $6 million to secure the future of experimental trials at the site. Eliza Burlage took a walk around with Armand Board of Australia's Chief Executive, Tim Jackson, at the Centre's field day. He told her the orchard was now owned by the growers.
14: So the new funding model that's been outlined by Hort Innovation is the next phase of this orchard being self-funding. When it was started, there was a very strict hand down from the board to say that it couldn't cost growers money. It had to be self-funding. It had to be able to prop up itself and perpetuate its research without growers having to dip into their pockets. So the new operation, operational funding model allows us to do that when it's been backed by uh, co-funding through our R&D levy and the crop receipts. How much does it cost to buy something like this? Well, we bought it for for the same price that uh, it was purchased from the neighbouring grower, but in that time it's developed into a valuable asset for the industry.
6: What was here before?
14: It was just a, a wheat field. Yeah, so grain grown dry land farming area. So it's a huge transformation from a, from a wheat crop to uh, 60 hectares of R&D.
6: What sort of things are, are growers learning about today? What, what have people been excited to hear and to find out about?
14: Well, growers are certainly uh, looking for the next innovation in tree structure, root rootstocks, uh, tree architecture, uh, varieties. There's, there's a lot of people looking to you know, plant almonds or restock uh, almond blocks. So just coming here and having a look at the spacings between the trees, between the rows, what rootstocks work with, what varieties. So there's a lot of things here that they can come and have a look at before they make some um, pretty big decisions around investment and redeveloping a block or starting from scratch.
6: Tim, we're looking at one of the uh, more experimental, kooky, nutty things here in the orchard. Some really close plantings of almond trees. How close are these trees planted and how different does does this whole situation look compared
14: to a normal orchard? Well, traditionally a row, the gap between one line of trees and another is seven and a half metres or thereabouts. Some of these rows are down as low as three metres and then the tree spacings uh, along the line are down one or two metres, which is way, way, way smaller. It looks like a hedge more than it does a, uh, an almond orchard. And that's all about pushing it to the limit. And that's what this R&D facility is all about, is pushing things to the limit and seeing what works and what falls over.
6: Because we're looking at, yeah, a more, I guess, a more commercial example of a, an almond tree growth here with lots more inside on the inside branches, less nuts and more leaves and less sunlight but in here they're much much skinnier but you said the idea was you get more sunlight
14: yeah absolutely so the plant food research has done a lot of work with apples cherries and a few other horticultural crops in new zealand and have had a lot of success in increasing yields but without increasing the size of the tree it is all about capturing light so by having a different structure a more vertical structure where the tree can capture light all the way through the tree has been really successful though so trying the same theory with almonds and see how we go before the poor old grower goes out and puts it in and then comes to us in five years ago that was a no, that was no good so we're better off having a go here first and then proving it before we say yep go ahead and do it some of the trials don't work like last year we had a bird expert working on um, managing birds in, in our orchard and had a theory that if she, we planted sunflowers done down one row of the orchard that that might distract the birds um, we were a little bit concerned that it was more like a sizzler all you can eat type scenario, and that 's exactly what happened that the sunflower thing just gave them about ba- more of a balanced diet, so you know, but if you don't yeah. try it, you don 't know so okay. and that 's what this, 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 what this orchard's all about is giving crazy ideas or left field ideas a chance to be to be done without a commercial ramification.
6: I know someone said uh, they'd love to see, apparently some, um, there was a, an orchard in the US where they had almost like a, a carnival train coming through where maybe the walk would be and people could sort of sit on and, and learn about that. Could you ever see anything like that at the orchards here, like some kind of agritourism tours? Oh,
14: Potentially. Uh, we've got biosecurity issues. That's why you all did the footpaths today, because it is we want to protect the integrity of the trials. But given those sort of parameters, I think there is a potential for this place to actually be a showcase for for more than just the, the almond growers themselves but you yeah, know at the moment we're just focusing on trying to keep the orchard going and ensure that we've got trials that are meaningful for growers
1: that's almond board of australia chief executive tim jackson speaking with eliza burlage about the almond center of excellence which is now officially open 60 hectare research facility in loxton in south australia's riverland love the almonds well, rice growers are reporting the worst duck problems they've battled in decades. Many people have been forced to re-sow crops that have been wiped out. Ducks have bred up in massive numbers since last year's wet weather, and despite the best efforts, growers are struggling to keep them at bay. Angus Verley spoke with Elder Swanhill agronomist Pat Conlon about the problem.
16: The duck numbers are huge at the moment. At a Sunrise meeting earlier this season, they quoted that Last year we had one million ducks, and this year it's four million. So the pressure is certainly up there. One local grower out at Cunniuk tells me that this year's duck pressure is the worst he's seen in his 44 years of growing rice by a long way.
17: Yeah, okay. So that that's a big, big statement then, that, uh, yeah, more than four decades of growing rice, and this is the very worst.
16: Yeah, it certainly is. Like, it's just getting to the stage where rice bays are actually getting wiped out overnight uh, and ducks are probably a lot smarter than we actually give them credit for so often we'll be you know check them at similar times so you might check them before you go to bed and when you get up first thing in the morning and even one grower on top of that pays a uh, shooter to come out of town and from all reports they're not seeing many at all hardly any but still over the last three nights we've had three bays or so wiped out uh, overnight um, and sort of we're thinking they're probably coming in around 2 to 4 o'clock in the early morning.
17: Right. So if you've got entire bays that are getting wiped out, I mean, is that rice going to come back or is it is it done for?
16: Yeah, so it's actually there's a lot of resows going on at the moment to the extent that the, the local seed depot, uh, you actually can't get rice. You have to wait till the final day to get rice just because they're so banked up.
17: Yeah, okay, so you can't get rice. And, and is it getting too late if you were going to attempt to resow?
16: Oh, look, it is getting late, but um, to an extent, like, we're already a fair way in um, cost-wise, so it's also about making some of that money back as well. But, yeah, so we're trying to do whatever we can. Like, we're using lights and gas guns, plenty of shooters, but, yeah, the numbers are just huge.
17: You do hear some people say that, you know, you you can get the shooters in and then that will deter the ducks and they might not come back, but it, it sounds like what you're saying is that that's not the case?
16: If you talk to the old cockies, they tell you that you you got to go really hard on them early. But there's just so many numbers this year that's it's just it's coming really hard to control. And even growers that are going around, you know, all sorts of hours in the morning, the ducks just keep coming back. So there's there's really only so much you can do.
17: So it really must oh be incredibly frustrating and must have people just tearing their hair out.
16: Yeah, well, yeah. As I was saying, there's there is a lot of re-sewing going on, and that hurts. And, you know, even if you're ESA, there's no guarantee that the ducks aren't going to smash you again.
17: It sounds like there really aren't a lot of good options then.
16: Uh, not particularly, mate. you just got to keep on to them. And um, the, the other problem is that when they get so bad, they actually put holes in the rice. And um, so even once the rice is established, they'll keep flying into those holes uh, into January. And they'll sort of work out from those holes and the holes will just keep getting bigger and
17: bigger. Okay, so pockets of the crop where there's just, just nothing growing.
16: Yeah, that's right, yeah.
17: And is it just the case that obviously last year it, it just didn't seem to stop raining, which was great great breeding conditions for all sorts of animals? And is that what's happened with the ducks, that they just built up in massive numbers and they're still there?
16: Yeah, so just with all the floodwater in last year, it's plenty of bred up. And, I mean, the same goes for snails as well. I mean... We're starting to find uh, snails in paddocks which actually weren't in rice last year and typically you do find snails in rice on rice but given all the floodwater, these paddocks were effectively inundated and the snails seem to have got a life cycle in and hatched, uh, laid eggs and um, now they're showing up in this year's rice crops. So, yeah, all sorts of issues coming out of last season
17: and with the ducks is it in terms of the area that you cover is it particular pockets that are worse than others or is it just a a widespread problem
16: oh no so we we sort of cover east of swan hill but even out at denny waylock hearing some shocking stories so yeah it seems to be very widespread
17: once it warms up a bit we've had some pretty cold weather really apart from last week but once it warms up and the rice really gets growing is that what what it needs so it can uh, grow away from the ducks
16: yeah, so really the uh best recipe for rice is uh you know, it's like a week of hot weather straight after sowing. and you know, at the moment, like today I've got two jumpers on, like it's just cold weather. We've really got the uh the magic combo at the moment. We got cold weather, we got lots of wind, we got snails, we've got ducks, we got rush and weed after we're just we're copping it from all angles at the moment.
17: And, Pat, we do know that ducks can move around and and travel long distances. So, I mean, could we have other weather events, you know, big rain events in other parts of the country, for example, that could see the ducks uh, pack their bags and head off?
16: That'd be nice, mate. Uh, I mean, you listen to some of the the older cockies in the area um, and they'll tell you that in 2012 when the ducks were actually quite bad. Also, there was a big rain up in Queensland and they almost disappeared overnight, just about.
17: Uh, the other thing, the other problem I'm hearing people talk about are the so-called uh, turbo chooks. Pat, could you just explain what they are and yeah, you know, what sorts of problems they can cause? Yeah,
16: so the adequately named uh, turbo chook, they're sort of like a small water hen, uh, and yeah, they they really do take off, so hence turbo. But yeah, there's a lot of them have bred up around the floods last year and so they're sort of grazing the edges of rice bays and look, there's some serious numbers around.
1: And that was Elder's Swan agronomist Pat Conlon speaking with Angus Verley about the big numbers of ducks and hens causing problems for farmers, especially rice farmers.